1: Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to Performance Anxiety. I am your host, Mark, and I wanted to take a second and thank our sponsor, AKG, for sending us their podcaster Essentials Kit. It has an incredible Lyra mic and a wonderful set of headphones. It's an economical and high-quality way to start your own podcast. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of speaking with concert promoter extraordinaire, Danny Zalisco. He's worked with the biggest names in rock and roll, and he's just released a book that's full of great stories and pictures. He talks about DJing a Led Zeppelin gig, helping Hall of Fame pitcher Randy Johnson warm up, flying to L.A. on an airmail flight, and the general day-to-day life of a concert promoter. It's a fascinating look behind the scenes of how your favorite rock band end up in your favorite venues. Pick up the book on Amazon or at dzplive.com. Follow Danny on social media. Follow us at Performance a and We gladly accept coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance Anxiety Merch is available at performanceanx.threadless.com. Rate and review us. It really helps us get in front of new people. Now get ready for an all-excess show with Danny Zalisco on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
0: Hey there, it's Danny Zalisco. I am the author of All Excess, uh, Occupation Concert Promoter. That's the name of the book. I'm the concert promoter who was crazy enough to write a book about all of my friends and all the uh, crazy things that have taken place over the last 50 years of rock. I can't be that old. Check out my book at com or at Amazon, uh, where all good things are sold. You can also get a, a copy of the Kindle version of the book there. Meanwhile, you're listening to Performance Anxiety right here.
1: Excellent. I want to thank you for joining me. And this is uh, this is going to be fun. This is interesting. I've, I've been reading the book and reading about you, and, and on this, and listening to some of your other interviews. And uh, wow, <laughs> it's it's been crazy. It's great. I'm glad you like it. Oh, very much so. Um, it's kind of mind boggling what <clears throat> you've done and who you've worked with.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's a mouthful, ain't it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. But what I like to find out though is kind of how you got there. I know that you're a big sports fan, and uh, you grew up uh, in the Chicago area.
0: Correct. And and growing up in Chicago in the '50s, '60s meant, you know, the White Sox, the Cubs, yep. the Bears, the Blackhawks. There weren't. I don't think there were any, any Bulls until later on in the sixties. Right. I don't think I don't think they had NBA there for a while, but we were, were big time fans of baseball, football, and hockey while we grew up there. And um you know, I mean at, at the time when we were growing up, the the only real exposure we had to music were, were the AM radio stations there and Ed Sullivan. Oh wow I okay mean, that's that's the only place you got music then. Remember this is before forget about before the computer it was before rolling stone existed yeah i mean this truly is by comparison uh what young people would call the olden days that's what we used to call them <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: um when when we were kids when our when our parents would talk talk to us about stuff from when they were kids and they referred to it as the olden days you know whimsically and and um you know in in my old days i, I mean that's that's what you did you played those sports and you followed those sports and you went to school and you yep. you and if you were smart you kept your mouth shut <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know but but other than that i mean we didn't have music we didn't have social media kids didn't have anything that resembled what they have today i mean right, the yeah. beatles made it so that suddenly product manufacturers are aiming more at kids other than for christmas or halloween or valentine's day yeah i mean or 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 their birthdays but now i mean they had a whole new thing to promote and make money off of which was music selling it to kids so they encouraged a lot of bands and bands were encouraged that appealed to a younger demographic um after the beatles came and then you saw all of these kids that were pre 10 year olds and, and tweeners at 11 and 12, and then the teenagers at 13. Everybody, suddenly there is a, a band for everybody, and there's something for everybody. But that didn't exist before then. And, and nowadays, um, you know, it, it's pretty much you, you appeal to different age groups with the music. But unfortunately, along the way what happened was is the people who programmed this music forgot about rock and roll music and everything is all these 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 pretty little kids with wearing no clothes and stupid dance moves.
1: Yeah and their and their voices are all computerized.
0: And their voices are all computerized. It, it's it's a big difference. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, I don't blame people for using the the uh, advantages that they that they have uh, that we didn't have earlier on good for them and you know if they can make money doing it and have a career good for them too all i'm yeah. saying is there's still plenty of room left for bands that actually play their own instruments and that rock
1: yes i agree a hundred percent but before you got you know you, you really got into that it was mostly sports for you so you were
0: well yeah i mean you know when i when i was a little kid i mean that's really all there was there yeah. was there was nothing pointing you at looking at music or listening to music until when i you know when i um uh, discovered on my own you know very accidentally i discovered the beatles as as a, a charting brand new band in the 60s and 62 i guess 63 and and but the beatles didn't get on on that Sullivan until 64 and that's that's when life started to change for me i mean i was still very much into playing sports and and knowing these sports people a lot of the famous guys that were playing in chicago at the time we got to meet and become friendly with and all that and and i actually look forward to a career in sports uh, as a player yeah as a player at one point i want to ask you about that there were there were were no such things as agents for sports people Uh, okay See, back then, that didn't exist. There's always been an agent, booking agents for bands and musicians, but there were never, I mean, that was a brand new thing, which really surprises me when you think about it. But they weren't making the kind of money that that, that the players are making now. That's true. You remember back then, in in the 60s, if somebody made $50,000, it was a king's ransom.
1: Yeah, because in the off-season, they all had part-time jobs, working at car dealerships and things like that.
0: Yep so you know it, it was it was just a completely a completely different time so you know the the whole thing about my interest in sports is just like anybody else's at that time and then music came along and it happened to be at the beginning of of pop music of popular music uh with the beatles came out and it just changed the whole temperature yeah. of the of the whole music scene for everybody all over the world it wasn't just England or America was everywhere, and, yeah. and and the whole, the whole thing shifted. the The entire cultural base and foundation of kids was changed forever, and it never it never looked back. Kids were now responsible and and had the ability to to make up their own mind of what they liked musically. Whereas before, it wasn't even a, a question; nobody cared.
1: Yeah, and and in that time, kids were actually. With the baby boom, kids, they're actually able to get out and get jobs and were actually an economic force in their own right for the first time in history.
0: Yeah. I mean, there there was, I mean, as a kid, you were never in the 60s, you were really never given an a, a, an opinion. You didn't have an opinion the way kids have opinions now. Right? The kids are so much smarter, I think, now than they were then in terms of the information that's available to them. Um, is night and day what yeah. what we were able to you know get it. I mean if we if we had to find something out we went to an encyclopedia right
1: yeah exactly you know
0: we didn't go to google and say what's the answer to this question yeah <laughs> which i really would have liked by the way i'm not saying anything all oh, right
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> we we would have all loved to have had google for those big school projects wouldn't we
1: oh god yeah
0: think of those things we used to have to do oh my god
1: go to the library Find your own It's like a
0: Most kids say I've never seen the inside of a library. I know. It's a shame. And I'm not saying it's my favorite place on earth either, but I'm just saying.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you mentioned that you you thought about a career in sports. What what was your sport?
0: Well, I was too little to be a football player, but I loved to throw. I had a great So I was a catcher, and, and I liked being a catcher because nobody – wanted to play catcher because it was a hard job very dangerous and and you had to be of a certain grit you know to play that position oh yeah um and this you know back in the day you you could get run over by a guy much bigger than you i'm not that big of a guy but i'm big enough to be a catcher and i enjoyed catching um it meant meant to me that i was going to be in every play of every game
1: yeah that's so true
0: you know, and, and, and back then, you know, when you're playing in the peanut leagues or little leagues or pony leagues, those managers are obligated to play all the players. You're not to leave people on the bench. And sooner or later, you're supposed to get in every game. And uh, nobody wanted my position <laughs> that's and, true. And, and that's what I liked about it, you know, because I, I could, I would play all the time. So unfortunately much later in my life, I, I would blame it as the culprit for damaging my legs. I've had two knee, uh, two uh, knee replacements and, and five other surgeries between the two. Oh wow! Yep. So man. you don't you don't have to make it in the bigs to get spr- hurt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in order to get hurt, man. It really was awful. Oh. It it was awful, but then along the way. I had, uh, I had my older brother around me, and he was influencing me with the music. He was only four years older, but you know the difference between a, an 11-year-old and a 15-year-old, again, oh, yeah. is night and day. Oh, yeah. So, so I was learning from the best, my brother, about all this stuff that was going on, girls and <laughs> drums and yeah. music.
1: All the important stuff.
0: So he could, and my parents would let me, let me go with him to the ball game. So I had an escort and, you know, babysitter. Somebody look after me when I was a little guy. Right. Cause I'm not supposed to be going into the inner city by myself, which I immediately started doing. When he wouldn't go or couldn't go. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I was, I was pretty, I was a quick study. I figured out how to use the bus <laughs> system. And, uh, but then as I got older and, and as I, I just kind of gra- drifted away from the playing aspect. I mean, I played up until I was 15. So I, w- I got into high school and I, and I was on the, uh, uh, the high school baseball team, but I didn't, you know, freshman year, I, uh, I didn't make the a squad or, or, yeah, and then, right, yeah. no, I didn't, I didn't make the a squad, but I was really into it. And somewhere after that first year, I just lost interest in playing and, and, and all this music stuff was happening. It was 1968, 69, all the music was coming out, you know, and I was getting older and I'm, I'm turning 14, 15 years old. So, you know, I mean, I'm discovering girls and, 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 and having fun with my friends and certain friends of mine had cars and we could have our independence and freedom and go out and do stuff. So, you know, I, that that became more important to me. And then I, I started going to concerts and, and, and music had always been a big deal to me ever since I heard that first Beatles record and, okay. and realized that nobody else had heard that record, but me in the whole city of Chicago, it felt like, yeah. and then, uh, and then the, the, the next week, the, uh, the song, please, please me went off the charts and we didn't hear anything about the Beatles. Again, other than what you heard about in the papers, and prior to the Ed Sullivan appearance, there was a lot of coverage on them, and and the fabulous scenes at various airports, like when they came home to London, yep. or Liverpool when they flew back in. I remember, you know, people hanging all over the airport just to get a glimpse of them, and and the the build up on them was just as natural and organic, and as beautiful as as a promotion could roll out but those guys they spent years playing five five sets a night all night long six sets a night and and people don't realize that they feel like the beatles just kind of came out of nowhere but they did the that all the work oh yeah you had to do yeah
1: those cavern club years were brutal yep do you remember the first concert you saw
0: you know um i remember seeing a guy in a shopping center he was a, a singer who never achieved huge status but it was a guy named ral donner and and he was a singer like a like a bobby vinton kind of a guy ah uh, okay uh way, way back in the 60s my mom took us to see him down the street at some shopping center that was opening or whatever <laughs> um and and i and i i enjoyed the whole the whole aspect of it you know the the lights, the stage, uh, the dark, the singing, the everything. I mean, it was much, much more primitive than what we're doing right now as far as concerts go. But um, it, it gave me a look at it, and, and I don't remember saying, oh, I want to do this. But as time went on and I got older and, and you started seeing more and more of these bands on Ed Sullivan, and then they had you know the uh, American Bandstand and like Daxton, and, yeah. uh, and and there was a number of these other TV show specials that would come on. Sunny and Share they featured popular bands, you know. And and as time went on, and music got more and more popular, we started seeing more and more bands performing on TV, and and they looked funny and they right. looked weird, and, you know. They they were cool and they they wore the coolest clothes and. They pissed off our parents, yeah. <laughs> which, yeah. you know, was the best part. That was important. And, and depending on how badly they could piss off your parents would determine how much you might put them in the front of the, of the list <laughs> of who you want to listen to even more, because it's going to piss your parents off. <laughs> you know, there were, I think there's a few records I got broken for that very reason. Oh, I'm. Um, I-
1: I got an album in the Chipmunks record broken when I was a kid, but that was just for
0: well, that, t- that one goes without saying <laughs> you got to break that.
1: So did you ever get the uh, music bug for playing music and, and starting bands?
0: Yeah, um I I sang in a band. Uh I play and I also shared drum duties. Uh my brother had a beautiful set of uh, silver sparkle Ludwig's that he bought Ooh. in the mid 60s. Then uh he he had to go on a motorcycle trip when he was about, I don't know, maybe 18 or 20, him and a few guys went from Illinois to California and back did the the long trip. And, um, he needed, he needed me to buy into his drum set so he could have some more money to spend. So I bought (laughs) into half of the drum set and and I also had learned how to play. I could still play pretty good, but nothing like, you know, one of these guys in the band or the way the bands play. I mean, But I I mean, I'm way, way more than adequate. I mean, I'd give me a six or a seven. Oh, nice. Um, Yeah, but I do like to play.
1: So no matter what you're doing, you're always like the rock solid part of whatever you're doing. You do the catcher and the drummer. You're always kind of...
0: That's funny. I I guess you're right. Yeah.
1: You're always kind of in charge there because, you know, the catcher's calling the game, the drummer's holding down the beat. So you're you're always kind of, you may be behind the scenes, but always kind of in charge and got your hands in everything.
0: The last um, thing I really did with sports was the end of the '90s and the early 2000s. Randy Johnson was pitching for the Mariners, yes. And um, and one of the one of the band managers introduced me to him and said he's a huge music fan. And when he's at home, you know, in the off season, he lives in Phoenix. Um, you should have him come out to your shows. You know, he'd like to come out to shows. I said, great. So I think the first one we came to was Deep Purple and he shot a bunch of pictures. He liked to take pictures. Yeah, he's pretty good. And then his wife called me one day after she'd known that we'd gotten together a couple times and uh, she calls me up out of nowhere and says, listen, um, between Christmas and spring training, Randy likes to loosen up and play catch. But the problem with Randy is he doesn't know how to just play catch. He, <laughs> he throws really hard all the time. <laughs> You know, and he's breaking my hand. He's going to oh. kill me.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Because, because he makes me play catch with him, but he doesn't know how to, you know, to him, like he throws at 70 or 80 miles an hour, which is nothing for him. But for me, it's coming in blinding fast. So she goes, Would you mind coming over and playing catch with him? Oh, my gosh. And I said, Well, sure. That'll be fine. So, sure. Nearly, nearly every morning, and I want to say I started in 98 but it was before he was on the diamondbacks. I don't think he came to the diamondbacks till 99. Okay. I'm pretty sure they, uh, cause they won the world series in Oh one. Yeah. So I think he was 99 anyway. Okay. So for all those years between Christmas and spring training in February, when they started, um, I would go over to his house uh, after I dropped my daughter off at school at eight o'clock and it's cold here at eight o'clock in the morning in December and January. Let me tell you. Oh really? And and yeah, I mean it's in the 40s a lot. Oh, you know, that's and that, cold, man. That, that's awful for playing catch.
1: Oh God, yeah.
0: Um, but that's when he would do it. I would. I, I had to go right by his house every day to drop my daughter off. So that's how I did it. And um, uh, so we would go in front of his house and play catch like a couple of kids. <laughs> and and you know, and then and then one of us would have to yell out to the other one, "Car coming!" Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> i swear to god i'm not kidding i mean it was, it was that squirrely. game on and yeah and game off. most of the time he would hit my mitt all i had to do is stick it out there and boom it'd be exploding in my glove and it's on a it's on a street with a bunch of nice houses but they're pretty far apart but what happened was especially in the morning when there's not that much noise Every time he hit my glove, the the, the glove would explode, right? Right. It'd make a great big sound like an M80 was going off in my hand. Yes, I love and that I, sound. Love, I love that. Yes. And then after after uh, we were done playing catch, I'd always go down the street because I'd always... I inevitably miss like, I don't know, a half a dozen balls. Anyway, right. I ended up with like, I had like a hundred balls at one point. I ended up giving them all away to kids, but oh, wow. I, I ended up with all of his baseballs because once they went over my head, I said, you want me to go get those? He goes, nah, don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, there'd be balls all over the street, you know?
1: Oh man.
0: Yeah. So we, we did that until, um, Oh three. I tried it one more time in Oh four. But in between there, in uh, in '03, I got cancer, um, wow. and and then uh, in February or, J- or January, when it was time to start playing catch again, I, I tried it one time, and I was in the middle of you know chemo, and and uh, I I just lost all my arm strength then, and uh, oh, sure. it was really a shame because I I loved. I love playing catch with him. And and then the other thing that I found out years later was I tore my rotator cuff on my right arm and I never knew it until uh, last year, I went in to get some x-rays on something else. He said, do you know that you tore your rotator cuff? And I go, go <laughs> well, it looks like it's it's healed over. Wow. I said, so so I said, you mean that was like something that if you would have known some years ago, you would have insisted on operating on it? And they said, they said yeah. <laughs> I said, but, but it healed by itself. I hear that's one of the worst operations you can do. Oh my and, god. You know so anyway um wow uh, yeah so I I had, I had to stop doing it then. And that was hell that was prior to me having either of my knees done.
1: Oh my god. Um
0: yeah, yeah. I'm I'm I mean I'm I'm okay now, but uh That's good. You know, you know, stuff happens as you get older. Yeah, <laughs> that's just true. the way it is. Just the way it is.
1: So did you start in the uh, promotion business before you moved from Chicago to Arizona? Or did you start that with some of the sports guys that you were friends with?
0: Oh, no, no I had nothing to do. The sports guys had nothing to do with the Um the you know I had Kirk Gibson I asked him if he would write the uh, I asked him if he would write the um, intro to the book the forward yes yes and and that was because in 2007 I I had the Who playing downtown at uh, at the Suns Arena and um, Bob Melvin brought Kirk Gibson to the show and we hit it off immediately and got to be buddies and uh, and then he ended up living in my house where my office is now wow! because I I've used that house for 10 years for storage for all of my memorabilia. I've got a, like tons of stuff. Man. And, um, so I was using that for storage, but now it's my office for the last 10 years. I've used this house as an office. So okay. the first year that, that I went back on my own after leaving live nation, uh, Gibby was uh, named to be the manager of the Arizona diamondbacks. And he called me up one day and he goes, Hey, uh, I need a place to stay. I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm like living downtown in this hotel. But we're gonna start spring training in Scottsdale. I was thinking it would be really cool if you let me stay in your house. You know, the other <laughs> person, he goes, I'll, he goes, I'll pay. You know, I'll pay your rent and everything. I know you like to keep that, that room for guests when, when they come. But I could really use it for a while. So he ended up staying about six months. And uh, he started managing the Diamondbacks, who was manager of the year that year. Wow! In 2011, and the the other fun thing was when he was standing there, he goes, "Hey, uh, Alan Trammell needs a place to stay too. Can he come stay with me?" Oh my god! So, so I, I had the two best Tigers there.
1: Yes. Oh, I used to love Alan Trammell. I wasn't a Tigers yeah. fan growing up, but I I loved Alan Trammell.
0: Great player, great guy.
1: Yeah, he, he was. He was him and Lou Whitaker. I just thought were just an amazing combo.
0: Right? Yeah. So, and, and they still haven't, they haven't put Lou or Gibby in the hall, which I think is a mistake. Oh,
1: for sure. Uh,
0: both, both those guys are two of the best ball players if you ever got to see him play. Oh, absolutely. And all all they do is they look at their stats. I mean, there's tons of players in there with stats not as good or, or were they as important to their team as those guys.
1: Exactly. Those guys were the rocks.
0: I'm still furious about Roger Maris not being in.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: I mean, everybody I say that to goes, he's not in. Exactly. But, you know, I mean, everybody assumes he's in He has the biggest record in sports. Yeah. And the way that they humiliated Barry Bonds and McGuire and Sosa, I mean, it's all the more reason to put him in for standing for something, you know?
1: Exactly. I agree with you a hundred percent. It's, it's a, it's a damn shame that he's not in
0: it really sucks and he, he should have been in years before but yeah you know he was he was a country boy a hick that had no idea of how to handle those sports writers in the big city and yeah and they didn't like him for it and and that's the only reason that's the only reason he's not in yeah i mean if louis if louis aparicio and Nellie fox were both amazing ball players if they're in the hall of fame so is roger maris that's all i gotta say i agree and, and there's so many others like that you know that oh, yeah. are really great players but they weren't as magnificent
1: right right they they kept a little lower profile or you know or like you're saying you know ticked off the wrong people so how did you get started promoting concerts I'm not I, I don't imagine I never you know went to my guidance counselor in high school and, and got that as a possible career so how did you get into it well,
0: guess what i did talk to a counselor about it because they started <laughs> to bring they it, when i was a junior in high school and i i completely blew it i didn't go to the show but they had stevie wonder and the james gang open for him
1: oh my god
0: right this is a 1970 or 71 wow And, and it was like it was like four bucks or five bucks and I didn't go. Oh. Uh, it, it was so stupid that I didn't go. Uh, what? A, and I heard it was a great show and it's stiff. So the uh, high school never did another concert that I was aware of because it, 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 it just didn't do well. I, I mean, wow. they, it, they managed not to captivate everybody's attention. I don't know how they failed. I, I mean, they didn't get me. Yeah. And, and I was a hugest music fan of everybody. and But we were going to a lot of other concerts in the city, uh, you know, in 71. 71 was my first really great big year of seeing a lot of shows. Okay, Prior to that, one of my first shows, one of my favorite first shows was Leon Russell. Oh, um, nice. I, I absolutely adored him. And uh, I saw a couple of his shows very early on. And then Emerson Lincoln Palmer and Humble Pie and King Crimson and,
1: Oh I love Crimson.
0: Um there, we we had a uh, teenage pizza bar down the street from us and they had bands in there like REO and Sticks and Chicago oh, played. Wow. There were a bunch of great, great Chicago local bands that you know never never got out of Chicago. Yeah. But we, we we had a lot of music around us then and and I loved the shows. I just loved these concerts and and, and dance things and there was little sock cups they had than the uh, they don't call them sock cups anymore but no. they used to <laughs> they had those they had those in the in the church basement and bands would come in here and play cover songs And we enjoyed those and you know there was plenty of stuff urging us on to become you know, part of the music scene i'd say the downtown concerts were really the ones and and um seeing those bands and their and their expertise and how incredible they played and with the lights and the sounds. And then of course, in the late sixties, early seventies, God knows what we were taking to go to the shows. (laughs) Bad, bad dogs that we were. (laughs) Um, And and, uh, we had our little rituals of preparing ourselves to see those concerts. (laughs) I mean, shit, because when you're at home or you're at somebody's house, I mean, everybody was always smoking something before they listened to the, some music or taking something right and and that's that's just what was going on at the time. That was all very new at that time and i I think there's you know that's all been beaten to death so much. I mean the bands and the audiences are nowhere as reckless and as crazy as they once were. I'm sure quite a few of them still are, but it's no nothing like it used to be as no far as, I'm, I'm sure you know. People, uh, people trying to blow themselves up all the time. Right? Yeah, they, they realize that they they are human. You better watch yourself. Right. Better
1: we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors.
0: But uh, you know that that was this the kind of stuff, and I, and I remember there was a guy called Howard Stein, who was a promoter out of uh, New York, and. He had a place there called the Academy of Music that he booked. I've never been to that place, um, so I don't know what it was like. And Bill Graham right. was around doing the Fillmore East and West, so I was familiar with some of the characters that were doing this. Dick Clark was also a concert promoter. He did the Beatles uh, when they played LA. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and and so I, I was aware of that term and and that they were the guys that that arranged these things. And, um, you know, I mean, it wasn't like, I mean, there's no school you can apply to. There's nothing you can do, uh, about that. But, you know, I, it was always on my mind and well, I don't know, you know, one thing led to another. <laughs> and I started, I, I'll tell you what, um, in, in 73, I got, I wrote about it in the book. I got invited to work at this Led Zeppelin show.
1: Uh, I to ask R- about this. Yes.
0: And, um, after the show, I mean, I started outlining trash cans with garbage can liners, right? And and that was my job at four or five in the morning when I arrived and reported for work. I had no idea what I was going to do it. I really didn't think I was going to be lining trash can. <laughs> but why should why should I be doing it? Not qualified to do anything right. really, right. other than I mean, I, I could I could have been a great assistant or a great runner that kind of stuff. So I was there to do whatever it is that they wanted me to do and later on in the day they had me playing music through their track tape decks that Shoko had on the soundboard. Wow. Um and and cuz they they uh, Jimmy Page took a, a very very long time finding his way from LA to San Francisco that day. Everybody else was there, <laughs> the band, everybody was there. And Jimmy decided he's going to take a regular plane and be one of the people. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> and fly to San Francisco like a normal person's uh, charter jet. Wow. So I had to play music to keep people pacified while the, while the set change was taking place and it took hours. Wow. And so I I had 12, I had 12 eight tracks to play for two hours. Oh my God. So that, that that wasn't very easy, (laughs) but I managed to, I managed to avoid playing too many of the same songs more than once (laughs) after the show is over. uh, One of the guys that worked for Bill Graham, Arnie Kostelnik, I don't know how it came up, but I overheard him saying, we're going to go to LA after the show. I said, how are you going to do that? They said, Oh, there's an airmail flight that leaves at midnight and it goes both ways. It goes from LA to San Francisco to LA and it's 10 bucks. And it's wow. this little U.S. airmail plane. I, I don't remember what airlines it was. I don't, I don't even know if it was an airlines. It could have been the U.S. Postal Service, for all I know. Right. Yeah. And 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 it was uh, it was very well known as as something that you know was available to people in L.A. or San Francisco as an airmail flight. And you paid extra when you bought postage with airmail on it. If right. You remember yes. airmails. Yeah. So. So I'm on the plane with this guy, Arnie, who says, come, come with, it's only 10 bucks. Well, I'd just been paid and I made $50 for my entire day of work from five <laughs> o'clock till I think that show is probably over around 7 p.m. Oh. Uh, I mean, it was a day, it was a daytime show, which I loved and I was out of there before it was dark and, and I ended up going to the airport with these guys from the show. It was it was a very cool thing. I was like one of the gang. I was, yeah, uh, I'm 18 years old, and and I had a little bit of money, so I had some money for some food. And I get to the gate, and of course it's closed, and it's not going to open till 6 a.m. So I slept in the airport, <laughs> and and at 6 a.m. I go up to the counter, and because of my $10 plane ride and whatever I had to eat, which probably cost me four or six dollars i ended up being three dollars short on the ride back to phoenix oh oh. um, for for the plane and i begged the guy behind the counter i said dude it's three bucks yeah it literally was three dollars wow and and he couldn't believe that i would be so unprepared and come to the airport without enough (laughs) money i said you know, it's not like I could talk to anybody in the middle of the night. I didn't know I was coming here at one in the morning.
1: Right. <laughs> you
0: know, and I mean, and I said the first flight, it was like $30 or $29 to fly from Phoenix to or L.A. to Phoenix. So I had to take an, uh I had to hitchhike down to San Diego to get the difference of the money for my friend and his mother. Oh, my God. <laughs> Who Royally bitched me out for being so unprepared and how dangerous it is to do this. And you know, I should just let you rot. And I said, all right, let me rot. She goes, well, I can't do that. I mean, mother's got to stick together. She calls my, she called my mother up. I said, I don't live with her anymore. She goes, all the more reason. Maybe you should, maybe you moved out too early. I heard, I heard it all. And, and, and but you asked, how did I become a concert promoter? And this is how, um, Wow. so I'm, I'm on the plane coming home, coming to LA with this guy. And he starts informing me that these agents, uh, these, these bands all have agents. And I didn't know that. I didn't know they had booking agents, you know, I'm 17, but I'm, I'm not been in this business yet. Yeah. And so, so he was the one that told me about the agents and and I'm sitting there taking notes as fast as I can and he's telling me this agent books this 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 and this this is the name of the agency there's the name of the agent Wow. and this this and you know I can do that now myself you know with with just about any I can tell you just about any band and what agency or who books them so this is what he did for me and it was a great favor that he did because after I got home I started reaching out and contacting these people and you know, the, the biggest question was always, well, who else have you done or, uh, or where do you do, where do you do your shows? And when you come back and say, well, this would be my first show or I don't do shows anywhere or, or whatever. I mean, they're going, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you get some experience and, and calls back? And I, I'm going, well, how am I supposed to get experience if nobody will give me any bands to book? Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: Uh, so, uh, what you end up doing then is you, you end up promoting whatever it is that you can get in and, and, and hope that hope that it, uh, it pans out, you know, Right. because what, what happens is the only bands that are available for somebody who doesn't do this are bands that are either possible losers right. or people or, or people, uh, who, who, a lot of people just don't know who they are yet new bands or old bands that are already tired and over the hill and unless you're in that game of knowing all that stuff about all those bands you can really get hurt you know financially you can make a big big mistake i mean back in the day back in those days when you had tickets of four five six dollars the bands are making twenty five hundred thirty five hundred five thousand maybe ten thousand dollars Okay. big groups. I mean, wow. like, like groups, like Bob Seger, 1980, they're making maybe 25, 30 grand. Oh, wow. You know? And, and if they're touring now, they're making a half million Jeez. or more guaranteed, you know? Uh, and the tick, cause the ticket prices are so much higher and, and everything is so much higher. All the costs are higher, everything. But back then, You know, there was a real conscience about ticket prices and and we didn't have scalpers driving those prices up, which is why people always ask, why are tickets so expensive? Because the best seats in the house, you can't ever charge enough because scalpers always get their hands on them and they raise them 10 times what they're supposed to be. And, And the bands are going, well, why don't we make that money? Why are we letting them make that money? You know, they don't want to charge that much, but if somebody's gonna do it, it might as well be them, right? Yeah. So, you know, and so all all of this is, is going on back then and and uh I did get my shows and I got the Mahavishnu Orchestra, I got Herbie Hancock and oh, Charles wow. Boyd. and I got Brian Auger, I did a Dave Brubeck. I did some oh, really nice. cool shows. But I couldn't I couldn't get what was cool and, and happening just yet until I did a few of those shows. And then I, of course I ran out of money. I mean, it's, it's hard to do shows without a nice bankroll behind you. And I, sure, I, I, yeah. didn't have, I didn't have a bankroll behind me and I didn't have any steady income. Um, and, and so, I mean, I was, I was taking part time, time jobs cleaning buildings, selling water beds. Oh, wow. The bottom line is in order to become a promoter, a yes, you need some money, but B, you you have to have the tenacity to never accept no you have to you have to constantly keep getting up from rejection and you know and 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 not take it personal And, and it's very difficult to not take things personally when people seem to be holding you back but the fact is they don't know you they're not holding anything back they're looking out for their own selves exactly and when you know, and, and, and they just want to know, and they sell you a show that you're not going to screw it up. Right. And you're going to pay, and you're going to do your job and pay your bills. So after you do a few shows and, and you get around, that's how you get to be a promoter is, 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 and then, then you start finding yourself buying this show and that show and this other show, and you take on shows that nobody else wants. And now you can have a case and saying to that same agent all right i booked your crummy act now give me your give me your great act yeah you know and and then you then then what would come up back then not as much now but it used to come up all the time they'd say well the band's loyal to the promoter that they used the last three times they played there Uh, and that's something and they said believe us when you start promoting shows and you will you're going to be good you're going to be fine but you're going to start promoting shows. And once, once every, you know, tour somebody else may challenge you and they might try to steal what you consider is your act because you did them last time and the time before, or you, or you took the first chance on them and broke them right. and and people came out and they liked you. And now all of a sudden somebody's offering more money now that you did all the heavy lifting. And we have to bring those offers to the acts. Some acts say, well, screw you. Where were you when, when, uh, when I was brand new and Danny was there and other ones go, Hey, Danny, why won't you pay me more money? Uh, You know, and and it it turns into that thing. So that's how you end up losing shows is because some other person comes buttoning on your territory territory and offers more money after, you know, you've helped them to become as big as they are. Wow. So there's a lot of things there that, you know, like, like any gig, the, those subtle nuances that, that end up coming up sooner or later in, in any position that you're in. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but that's, that's how you, you become a promoter, though, is you, you, you do a lot of shows, and, and you do them well, and you, you get good reviews uh, from your shows and your efforts from people back to their agents and the managers. And, you know, they say, yeah, this is a good one. You can you work with him, trust him, you'll have a good time, whatever. And um, that's how you get to do shows.
1: And so part of that is working with the logistics like getting everything for backstage, getting everything, uh, working with their sometimes weird riders. And, and there's interesting oh, yeah, everything. Are you, are you working during the concert? or Do you ever get a chance to just sit back and watch any of the shows that you promote? Or are you constantly working during them?
0: I try to watch every show that I do. Um, I'll see some of every show that I do if I'm there, but you, you can't. Yeah. During, but I I, typically, it depends on the show. I mean, if you've got a big show in an arena, you know, there's an accountant there representing me and, and advertising people and, and a production manager um, that deals with the band's production peoples to make sure they're all talking the same language. Okay. They don't want me talking. <laughs> they don't want me. They don't want me in the middle of, of, of technical stuff because that's just not what I do. I, I put together the show right. with the agent and the band and everything, and the band brings their show in and book it. But every there there's uh, depending on the size of the show, there's anywhere from two or three people on the road with each band to a hundred. Depends wow. on the band and the where they're playing.
1: And so you've got your own team to deal with their team. Correct. Okay. So so that I guess that would give you the freedom to actually watch and enjoy the show that you help bring to your city.
0: Well, I mean, typically my job is mostly over by the time the show comes. Comes to town, it's like you know. I'm I'm always looking forward to 11 o'clock because that means the show's over. Right. Doesn't it? Doesn't mean I'm sick of anybody. It just means I want the show to be over. So I mean, so I fulfill all my obligations, my responsibilities to the audience and to the band and the building, and my staff, and and we all work together to finish up a show and go home and sleep in our own beds and uh, get after it again the next day.
1: When did the idea? To write your book, all excess happened. Uh, what, what what caused you to decide? Oh, ah, yeah, I want to write a book about my career.
0: Well, you know, there uh, there's a lot of stories in there that I've told many times over the years, and there's a lot of other stories that are newer that came along later. But the fact is, not to be a name dropper, people love reading about their favorite stars. Very true. And people like people like knowing about. What are they like or, or just certain incidents that they're not aware of? How did this happen? Wasn't that cool? And uh, after you tell those stories for a while, it's like it just makes sense to maybe write them down and, and, and put them into a certain order so that it makes it fun for somebody to read it. And then you got to find the pictures and other things that will make people chuckle or fill in the storyline and so right. forth. And that's what I did with this book and, and that like one of the things that took me forever um, otherwise it would it would have maybe been out a year earlier was what pictures do you use and how many of them and and where do you stick them you know it's like most books yeah. have a, a photo section or two and then the rest of it is all writing yeah and I didn't want to do that I, I like the idea of having the pictures right there on the page so you could look at who it was. I'm talking about or writing about, and you can see exactly what they look like or what I was looking at when I was, you know, in the midst of this story. And I think it, I mean, it, I think it really helps tell the story much better than if you have a photo section, 60 or 80 pages into the book and exactly. you got to turn it back to see who you're talking about. Exactly. You know, it's just, uh, so I, I never liked that part of the book process, but the reason they do that is because it costs much less for the book guy who's putting the book together. Um, it costs uh, you, the person who's publishing or, or, you know, paying for the book to be printed. The the paper's cheaper that you type the words on and the paper's more expensive that you uh, put pictures on. So that's right. why they put those together like that instead of a page here, a page there. You know, it just adds to the cost of... Uh, actually making the book into a a, a finished product so i naturally i ignored everything (laughs) and and, um i finally figured out that all i had to do is get the the stories written and then add the pictures to them and then you put the thing in the order that you want so i had a working order for a while but i still hadn't pulled the trigger on on the uh, pictures and finally, when I finally did that, then then they could actually lay the book out and be done with it. And that took a, a good month or, or so um, last year. And, um, you know, and then somebody says, well, why don't you you know, give me six months and I'll see if I can find a publisher for you. And it's like, I was going, I'm so sick of this thing. (laughs) I want to get it. Let me get my story out now. You know, and and as it was, I didn't end up with a distributor or a publisher or anything like that. We did it all of ourselves. So the book is great. And and I'm very proud and happy of, of, of all the effort that everybody put into it. But I really do wish I had that distributor or publisher because there's a lot of stuff about putting out a book I just don't know about. We're we're getting around that. I'm getting my interviews and I'm you know, I've done a, a lot of things to promote it and it's it's okay. I mean, we're we're getting it out there slowly but surely. But, you know, in today's world, everybody wants everything yesterday. Everything exactly. brand new has got to be brand new. You know, I mean today, these days they beat the hell out of things for a day or two, and then it's old news and they're on to something else. So yeah. You know, you just do your best and and hopefully it's enough.
1: Well, I love how you formatted it with the pictures and each story is its own chapter. So you've got like 60, oh, you know, about 60 chapters and they're all shorter stories. It's not bogging down people, you know, readers with minutia and and, and all. And, and like you said, having to flip back and forth to find a picture that correlates to that story. And I, I think right. that's makes it a, a really easy, really nice read.
0: Yeah. It came out great that way. There were, there were certain things or certain people I wanted to talk about that didn't require a long chapter. Or as they say, also a picture tells a thousand words. So while the picture is telling a thousand words, I had the best time I had writing that book and putting it together was once I found the picture and realized that picture had to be in there, was writing the captions <laughs> underneath it.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And and I and there's some really good ones. Yeah, um, there are. If I do say so myself, there's some really funny stuff there. And with that picture, if you're familiar with that person or that band or whatever it is, my caption in that picture can tell you a whole story. And, and I, I like that about it. Cause everybody these days is such a quick study and a quick reader. I mean, you're, you're going through your social media and it's like, boom, 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 yep. you know, you could have you could cover 10 subjects or, or ideas in a minute. And, and people do that. I mean, very rarely are you going to get people to stop click and read and absorb. So oh, for sure you gotta, you gotta get that stuff in there as quickly as possible because people just have, you know, all the social media and the phones and everything else, emails, all this is all done while it makes certain things way more convenient for us. It just makes it that much more possible for us to be busier and doing more stuff. Yep. And, and uh, as opposed to sitting back and, and laying back and, and reading something or going to a concert. And, you know, we have been able to go to concerts uh, for over a year now the way that we're used to. I, I yeah. imagine that'll be returning sooner, sooner than later, I think, at this point. I, I think I, so. You know, I, I, I imagine um, I'm thinking around Labor Day. Maybe, you know, some things are already, I understand, in various parts of the country are already starting to happen yeah in various places um but you know we'll we'll see about that I, I i mean we're we've been close to feeling like we've had this thing snuffed out a couple times and every time we get close to that you know somebody's got to open up something yeah. uh, pre- prematurely and boom we're back where we started so i mean i i get it i i know i'm everybody is as uptight as can be and impatient and, and, and ready to get back after everything and right you know, I'm one of them. We, I, I had a show uh, scheduled the night of uh, March the 15th last year, and at six o'clock, the governor told the told everybody here to shut everything down. Uh, so yeah. at six in the evening for a seven o'clock show, I we had to send everybody home.
1: Oh God, that's it devastating. Yep. I'll tell you. Despite that, what I like about. The stories and all that you're saying, you know, even though you've that was that's a horrible story, (laughs) but the stories in the book aren't mean spirited or anything, they're just good, fun stories. And yeah, I think that's one of my favorite parts about the book because you're not dishing any dirt or, or telling you know secrets that aren't supposed to be let out, it's just good stories. So, I have a couple questions about some of the stories, and we don't have to go into great detail, it's just a few, but. The first first thing I want to know is what's going on in the cover picture.
0: What's going on with the cover picture?
1: Yeah, what do you what do you what is going on? You've got this big wad of cash. What's going on?
0: What happened there was uh, I had just put on Pink Floyd at the Municipal Stadium, and they played two nights. And in the, the the local stadium, you know, it's a minor league ballpark.
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
0: So they only have grandstands, you know, that's surround the field, but there's no bleachers. And so here's Pink Floyd coming in there and I need to have 25,000 capacity. So the head of security says to me, I don't know, a couple of weeks before the show, he goes, give me 10 grand in cash. I said, what for? He goes, I'm going to go buy all the parking lots <laughs> around the stadium because they only have parking for, for 8,500 people, which comes out wow. to about that comes out to about uh, two and you know I think it's two point three people per car is, is how they go to shows. Oh wow! So I I needed more parking spots, you know I needed ten thousand parking spots, not two thousand or twenty five
2: hundred. Right, yeah.
0: So we rented all the parking lots and and uh, they brought the money over to my house after the show. That's where that was taken. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and as you can see I was very happy.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very happy
0: Danny. So I made more on the parking than I did on the show.
1: That's amazing. <laughs> oh my it's god. True. I also yep. read that All right. So you had a hand in naming Lollapalooza with Perry Farrell? Uh-huh. How did that happen?
0: We were just up late one night, you know, getting loaded, having fun. And he was telling me about this dream he had about this show that was going to be bigger than any concert and cooler. You know, he goes, you know, we, they should be able to buy stuff that, that appeals to them. Concerts should be more than, be, you know, buying a crummy hot dog and, and, a, and a Coke or a beer. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and he just had this image because he loved going to shows himself. Um, and he wanted to be, he wanted to help create something bigger and better than anything else. And, but instead of having it in a stadium, you know, he wanted to, he, he was wanting to utilize the, uh, amphitheaters that are around town. And, and at the time when, when he was, um, in Jane's addiction, late eighties, early nineties, when this was all going on, that, that form of music, which his is somewhere between I don't know progressive and punk and hard rock yep. and, and and everything else. Um, I mean they they covered a lot of bases. They it, it, it was like, but they weren't a they weren't a metal act, but they were a hard rock act. And yeah. and they he, he just wanted to transform the experience for the for these new forward thinking people that were going to his concerts. He wanted to give them something mind blowing and bigger and better than, than anything else. And he just couldn't come up with a great name for it. I remember he wanted to call it some kind of a big jamboree or something like that. And I said, Perry, it sounds like a boy scout troop, right? (laughs) You know, I mean, you know, I know you want to do something and he wanted to do some kind of tongue in cheek, kind of old school, old fashioned, you know, that, that would summarize the, the, the feeling like, you know, kind of like a picnic, but you don't want to call it a picnic. Right. Yeah. You know, you got to come up with something cool and, you know, and it just kind of came out like, and I, I, don't know which one of us said it, but it was in the midst of, of a several hour jam session on this topic we kept coming back to. And it just kind of like, we want to have a Lollapalooza all the time. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> you know, that's a good one. You Man. know, something like that. And I think we said at one point we're going to stay up until we do, it. we name this thing. And I, so oh, it was in our best interest to figure out a name sooner than later.
1: Right. <laughs> well, I went to a bunch of those. So thank you because that was, those were amazing shows. Yeah. Now, the other instance that I had a question about because I don't think I could have done this was the time that Whitney Houston asked you to get mike tyson off the stage in vegas Uh-huh. i don't think i could have done that i think that's, no, no thanks i'll take a loss on this one
0: no i, I wouldn't have had a show I, I i know but mike tyson's kind of he, he's now nah, there's no buts <laughs>
1: okay see that's why you do this and I, I don't i'm
0: just telling you it's like when when some stuff like that happens it's not all the time it's very rare that something like that happens i mean i, I can't remember any other I'd have to really think about, it. but there's things <laughs> that happen that make people crazy and, and it becomes your problem. It's not your fault, but it's, it becomes your problem like this. And and in my case, all I had to do is go down there and get past his uh, two mountains of beef that were in front of him <laughs> and, and, um, and, and talk to him about the problem. And when I explained to him how, how she felt about it and, and why she was so upset, he said, "I understand," and I wow. said, "But I got to take, I got to get you off the stage right now, because she wants to go and come on with me. Will you let me take you down the stairs?" So I, I kind of, very gently, touched him by the arm and, and kind of let him down the stairway. And as soon as we got to the bottom of the stairs on the floor, the lights went off. There's Whitney standing not that far away from us, over us, with the lights on, looking at me, and she did this fantastic, fantastic show. Wow. And afterwards, she called me back to her dressing room again. I, I walked in the room, the door closed behind me, and I'm looking at her. She goes, my hero. Oh. And then and, and, and he goes, and I hear behind me, you're a dead man. And it, it was him. Oh. You know, he's in the dressing room after the show. And he was laughing. <laughs> they were all laughing. <laughs> Let's scare the shit out of him. Oh, man. <laughs> I think and, that's my favorite. kind of dead.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know there's got to be other other stories that got left on the cutting room floor. Is there another book in the, in the making or?
0: Oh, I don't, I don't know that I'd ever do this again. I mean, you know, this, there are so many things that have taken place and transpired and all those thousands of shows, all those thousands of days. Think about it. Since, since I started doing this, like 15,000 days have passed. Wow. And, and there's been shows on a lot of those days. So, I mean, I could spend the rest of my life writing, but I'm not going to. I mean, it's it, it's like, I think I shared a great deal here, a lot more than a lot of people have. If I was moved to, I mean, of course I would do it, but this, well, I'm still working this one. I mean, it took me so long to get it together and get it out that I, I'm, I'm anxious to make sure that anybody who's a good you know music fan or a concert fan I'm, I'm really anxious for them to, um, get a copy of this. Um, you know, it's a fairly pricey book. It goes for 50 bucks. Right. When you consider this is double the size of most books and it has five to 10 times more photos in it and how much more it costs me just to print it. It's ridiculous. You don't want to know. Um, but you know, I decided, this is going to be for people who are true music fans, people who buy records, people who buy concert tickets, mm-hmm. people that live in Phoenix, people live in Chicago, people live in Philly, people live in Boston, people live in Virginia and Tampa, <laughs> doing everywhere. You know, like the the, yep. the the point is 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 for me that my life has been like I've, I've had a starring role in my own life, which is which is really fun. Um, it's been, it's been such a blast. And like you said, I, I didn't want this book to be about griping about who did what to me or what bad things happened. I mean, this wasn't about exacting revenge from anybody, right? You know, this, this is purely about, you know, knowing and being aware of how fantastic some of these names are that, you know, that are in here and that I've been able to have stories with in life and fun and things. And, exchanges and um I don't know. You know, it's it's been a gas. And and um and I'm looking forward to the uh this whole nonsense <laughs> that we've been going through this last year. I mean yeah I call it nonsense not because I'm making light of it, but the re- the fact that it's still here and, and it's still causing the troubles yeah that it is uh indicates to me that nobody took care of it when they should have. And, uh, I mean, we've never had anything in this like this in our lifetime before. And I sincerely hope we never have anything like it again. Oh, me too. Uh, this, this is like, this is just so terrible. The things, you know, that have taken place. I lost John Prime, right? which was, um, which was like, uh, you the worst. Re-
1: you guys were really good uh, friends.
0: Oh, best friends. Um, I did more shows with him than anybody in my whole life. Wow. And, and we spent more time you know with each other outside of concerts as well um, so I mean, losing losing him was was like losing a family member without question oh,
1: I am so sorry
0: yeah and um, and it happened right at the beginning of this I mean it happened right when all this started uh three weeks it was That's three right. weeks after it was three weeks after that concert I had was cancelled
1: yeah I remember it was uh, it was early on in in, in the whole thing.
0: Yeah,
1: Shark Tank has a role oh, in this
0: Yes, I, I, I was going to be smooth and remember, but you know. <laughs> uh, I was watching. Um, now this goes back to 2016, and Bill Bill Walton was on Shark Tank uh, on, on an episode, and I'm friends with Bill Walton. I've known him through you know the Grateful Dead for many years. Right. And, and he, he, he's been to most of my dead shows, and whether it's in Vegas or in uh, Phoenix, he comes because it's so close to his home in San Diego. So um, he was on the show one night, so I watched it, and it was funny. He was great. And then um, the next guy that was on was a ghostwriter. Okay. And he came on and he talked about how. Um, he could help you write your book. And when he was done with you, you would have a hundred copies of your own book and um, he would help you write it and put it together and take you through all those mysteries of book writing because most normal lay people do not know how to put out a book and I'm one of them. Right. So I got him on the phone the next day, which is the thing about shark tank that's so amazing is like, uh, you can, whatever the product is, whatever the name of it is, whatever it is, you can find them the next day. I mean, that's ridiculous yep. because in my mind, you know, you, you got to do research to track people down Yeah, and, and you know, <laughs> you don't have to do that anymore. You no. can just type it somewhere and it comes up. I mean,
1: boom, Un- it's I unbelievable. Mean, what was the
0: last time when was the last time you called information on the phone?
1: I, I couldn't even tell you.
0: So I called him up and we made a deal and, and he started interviewing me over the phone. And then he started, you know, then he'd have the stuff printed, typed out. And then we started editing. So I started, I actually, I had a great deal of this book written in, in 2016 and 2017. Oh, wow. But then, like I said, um, well, he sold his company. Um, and then the new people were supposed to take me on with the sale of his new company. And they tried. I mean, they they legitimately tried, but I, I never had the same chemistry with them that I had with him. And I would I would put this thing down, and I'd get very busy and doing concerts and stuff, and I'd I'd walk away from it, always with it, you know, nagging me in the background. Finish me, finish me. <laughs> yeah. And uh <laughs> you know it uh it it took a little more than that kind of begging for me to get done but when when march rolled around this last year uh it seemed like a great time to to bear down and and uh, you know just finish it up and be done with it right Um, so so that happened and then um i've also decided that i would start lightening my uh, load of memorabilia that i've collected over the years so i'm starting to sell off some of that. I've had a few auctions where, um, I mean, I, I just collected so many things over the years. I mean, these guys are signing five and 10 and 20 things for me at every show. Right. Um, that, you know, I mean, I I would either give out to people that work for me if they wanted it or other people at the hall or, you know, we, we'd share it with people, but I inevitably would end up with more, which was great. But over the years, I had to address all that. So I bought another house to store things in. (laughs) And I've got five, and I I have five storage units. Oh, my gosh. Plus, I had a 6,000 square foot office uh, (laughs) that that my office was in that I completely covered from ceiling to floor with stuff.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Um, Also had the Dodge Theater in downtown Phoenix, 5,000 seat auditorium where I had 500 pieces in there, including a hundred guitars framed on the walls. Oh, Uh, wow. And then I also, I also stocked Alice Cooper's sound, Alice's restaurant that I was a partner in with him and Shep for 18 years. And I had over 300 pieces there and all of, all of those things came. Well, the Dodge thing, the, the, the stuff came out of the Dodge in 2011 when I split up with live nation. Right. right. So I've been an independent promoter again for another 10 years. since I left Live Nation, so I went about 26, seven years on my own, then 10, 10 years for when I sold, which included five years of Live Nation. Okay. And then 10 years as Danny Zalisco presents, which I'm at the best because you know I, I can enjoy what I do now again and, and not have some kid who's never risked a dime of his own money telling me what to do or, or, or making policy without my approval. Right. You know I mean? After a while, I, I think uh, after you do X amount of thousands of shows, you deserve to make your own decisions. And, and that's, uh, that's what I'm doing. And it's, you know, I'm, unfortunately, I don't get to deal with all of the top, top drawer, top line, giant acts that I used to, but I deal with the best that are, that are available now I right. my regular my regular clients are people like Alan Parsons and Frankie Valley and Jackson Brown
2: and oh,
1: wow.
0: Eric Clapton and AC DC and the Dead and Bobby Weir. I mean, I've got a George Lopez. I got a great lineup of great names. Those are just a few, but there's there's a good couple hundred names of of great artists that that I um still have great relationships with to this day. And and they're they're not they're not the type of people that just look at the money or how do I make life easier by not dealing with people who live in the towns that I visit. Right. You know, I mean, these other promoters, the national promoters, they definitely have people that live in, in every city that, that they do shows in. It's going to be interesting to see how it comes back. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and how many people they, they actually uh, uh, employ. Uh, because it's, you know, I mean, everybody's just taken such a massive hit oh. without having any income and trying to figure out how to keep good people, you know, on your payroll or, or, or have it so that when, when it's time to come back, they come back, you know?
1: Yeah. Because, you know, you guys haven't been able to do anything, generate any income and and the employees need to you know feed themselves and their families. They got to find other jobs. Yeah. So, well, you mentioned that. You have a huge collection of memorabilia. I'm assuming that's sports and music. Correct. What is the crown jewel of your collection? What is never going into your auction?
0: Well, I don't know about never, but uh, <laughs> I've got a about twenty in the late '90s. I I bought a um, signed 1965 Gibson acoustic signed by those four guys from England. Oh wow! And I really like that piece. Yeah. But I, I, I mean, everything's for sale.
1: Everything's got its price.
0: So, some somebody uh, wants to come across with with a nice check, or I prefer cash. uh, Be happy (laughs) to consider it.
1: Well, once this big podcasting money starts to roll in, I'll be in touch with you.
0: All right, good (laughs) idea. (laughs) Well, I hope so.
1: I I've kept you for a while, man. Thank you so much for spending so much time and telling me some great stories, man. It's been a blast.
0: No problem. My pleasure. Make sure you tell everybody they can find this thing at dzplive.com. dot com.
1: Yes. And is there a social media uh presence that people can follow you on as well?
0: Oh yeah, we're we're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and uh let's see. Oh, and Amazon has a Kindle version of it. Oh, cool. And and another part I, I think you could get it here, but I had to I had to have the two different types uh, styles of books that I made. One I made is more like a coffee table size. Okay. And then the other one that, that Amazon has is a normal book size, but bigger than a normal book, but that, that's style. Mm-hmm. And um, they charge a little bit more for that book. But um, so you can get the book or the Kindle through Amazon, but the the actual original book that we made up, which is a coffee table, Bigger size book. Um, that's through the DZP live.com.
1: Okay. And you said that the shipping is included in that price, right? Correct. Excellent. Oh, man. Well, I'm enjoying reading my copy of it. And I, it's got so many great stories. I, I really I would love to sit here and talk to you about all of them, but that would kind of defeat the purpose of you writing a book. So thank you right. for spending so much time.